Hello from Cyberry and Delinea, and welcome to the show. If you've been enjoying the Cyberry podcast or 401 Access Denied, then make sure to like, follow, and subscribe so that you don't miss any future episodes. We'd love to hear from you. Join the discussion by leaving us a comment or review on your platform of choice or emailing us at podcast at cyberry.it. From all of us at Cyberry and Delinea, thank you and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the 41X Destined Podcast. And it's a pleasure to be here. I'm your host of the episode, I'm Joseph Carson, Chief Security Scientist and Advisory CISO at Delinea. It's a pleasure to be here. And I'm really excited about a special guest, someone who I've been waiting for a long time to get onto the podcast. And uh, it's a pleasure to have Paula joining us today. So, Paula, uh, welcome to the Access Tonight podcast. You want to give us a bit of background about yourself, what you do, and uh, some of the things you, you do in the industry? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thank you so much, Joseph, for, for uh, your invitation. Uh, absolutely pleasure. And uh, it's a great name. And I'm uh, pretty sure that everybody uh, says this. So I'm going to be yet another person that's going to say it's a great name for the podcast, for sure. <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, a couple of couple of things. So um, yeah, as you as you know, Paula Yanushkevich, what I'm doing for a living, it's purely cybersecurity, which means that uh, I'm engaged in the cybersecurity industry for over 17 years right now. Uh, sounds like a long time. And uh, I'm also a CEO of Secure. This is the company that I have established uh, 13 years ago. So we celebrated at the end of the uh, year, uh, the 13th anniversary. And um, yeah, te- technically, uh, I've been doing for my whole life pen testing, incident response, forensics, and uh, I have access to the source code of Windows. And even though I get this business role within a company, uh, I am all the time engaged in projects and I don't plan to give that part up. <laughs> Absolutely. That's that's a lot. I mean, from one of the things is that uh, I've always enjoyed is that uh, when uh, getting to meet you at some of the events, because that's where we started meeting at events several years ago. I've always enjoyed watching you doing the actual very technical demonstrations during the Arsenal events. At, uh, I think it was at Black Hat and even RSA. Yeah. Um, so do you want to give an overview of what, what you demonstrate and some of the tool sets that you typically cover there? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So um, Black Hat Arsenal, of course, it's a great opportunity to share tools. Yeah, so mm-hmm. every every year we release some new tools, and um, we've got a privilege to demonstrate it at uh, Black Hat. So one of the major tools that we have, uh, or major toolkits that we have uh, created, are the ones that uh, we use for the data protection API. So the cryptographic platform uh, in Windows, and uh, not absolutely bragging about it or anything like this. But as far as we know, we are the only and the first team in the world that fully reverse engineered uh, data protection API. Mm-hmm. So uh, we've got over forty tools that are supporting the process of decrypting the data from Windows in various ways, extracting keys, the private key from the mm-hmm. uh, domain controller that is allowing you to decrypt every user secrets in a whole enterprise. So it is important to know how your data is stored. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's why we basically share these tools and we, we made them public. But of course, there are also other tools. Yes. So uh, for pen testing, for forensics and, and RSA as well, it's a great opportunity mm-hmm. uh, to present some case studies uh, to, to uh, talk about how not only the tools, but also how we are able to deal with certain situations that are inconvenient, uh, for 
example, we are under attack or anything mm-hmm. similar. Um, and and what kind of steps you can do to recover? Because we've got, I think I can say that quite a lot of experience as a team as well mm-hmm. to participate in a various also incident response projects. So I'm always super happy to share these stories and, and be completely open about it and what kind of uh, things uh, happened and what kind of things someone did to mm-hmm. recover because you know someone technically might find that useful absolutely i mean that's one of the, for me it's 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 important i always like to do those use cases as well because from instant responses the real the real world scenarios and i think there's a lot of people can learn from the lessons and experience that other organizations have had through those um and it's really important because the lessons you learn from there really helps you understand about what's the risk what's the common techniques and how you can reduce and what I see some of the things that you've been doing is I really think you've taken the flag from Mark uh, that's been doing the internal tools for a long time. Because mm-hmm. um, that's one thing that I started off with a long, many, many years ago with yeah. internals to troubleshoot and find out what's really happening under the covers. And I think that's, you know, I do see you <laughs> has taken the flag from Mark and continuing Don, even though that, you know, Mark's still involved at Microsoft and still does the internals updates. And he, of course, they just did the Windows internals uh, update in the books, which has been fantastic as well. Uh, which has been written for a long time. But I think okay, what you're doing is really taking, continuing that uh, great work that Mark did, but in a different uh, angle. So fantastic. Uh, one of the things I want to, you know, the main theme of today's uh, episode is all about, you know, where have, you know, what's been happening over the past few years? What's the landscape? What's What types of incidents have you seen? What's the trends? Uh, can you share a little bit about kind of what you've been seeing in the industry in the past few years that should be important, uh, you know, that uh, we should be looking at? Yeah, absolutely. So I can tell you one thing for sure that during the pandemics, we have uh, seen and we are still seeing the huge increase in various attacks. And that is completely crazy because uh, there's lots of different projects that are coming in and there is yet another and another and another company that's getting affected in some kind of a way by mainly ransomware because mm-hmm. ransomware is definitely on a rise. And uh, and if we look into statistics, uh, maybe let's let's first mention those because they are creating us a really nice uh platform to, to start this conversation. We are, for example, when we look into start summarizing 2021 from companies like Trend Micro, IBM, and mm-hmm. so on, uh, we can read that um, the ransomware attacks on the financial organizations, they have increased by 1,318%. So I'm looking at that stat. It's like, hey, since when do we see in the statistics, something increasing by 1,000%. Yeah, 100 is already a lot, but normally we're like, oh, 50% increase. And then we feel like, okay, that's a lot. But 1,300, that's a lot. <laughs> a lot too. It's, it's a big number. <laughs> and any company with those figures uh, would be considered uh, doing extremely well. <laughs> yeah, so, so it's like, okay, so question is why, right? Because, mm-hmm. well, answer will be, pretty straightforward because it's a very lucrative business. You can earn illegally lots of money uh, to to run various ransomware campaigns. And unfortunately, the other side looks at... there, there are these points of entry that we are thinking about, so simple user passwords, no multi-factor authentication, possibility to run the macro from the attachment from the email, something that goes through anti phishing filter. This is not even stopped on the Windows platform, but it can be. Yeah, so the, here, here is the problem. Yeah, so, so these points of entry are not only predictable, but they are also easy to manage, and they are still there. And uh, that's why lots of uh, people decided to step in into the ransomware business. And according to some other stats, 
uh, ransomware, uh, if it was a country, it would be the third richest country in the world. <laughs> so, so this cyber crime, cyber crime part. It, it so does pay. <laughs> it definitely it does lucrative. pay. Yes, and also the cost of uh, getting a lead, so getting a, mm-hmm. getting to the target, is also very low. So um, it's it's very um, encouraging to actually step into some illegal mm-hmm. actions, and that's what we see. So we've got a ransomware brought to the field, but another angle is that we can also see um, planned attacks uh, that are coming through vendors. And that's a kind of, maybe not a new reality, but we see that one happening quite often so that there is an IT company, supporting company, supporting bigger organization. These guys are attacked. Of course, they store credentials for the other company somehow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if it's not safe, then, or whatever the way would be, how do they connect? Yes, is it like cached uh, logons, cached uh, passwords somewhere, maybe in the remote desktop files, like Mm -hmm. these kind of simple things. And then uh, they manage to get access. And for example, we've got a case of a customer. It's a series of factories, a place all around the world, where their data has been encrypted. Unfortunately, Mm -hmm. they did not have backups that were up to date. They had to pay the ransom. Of course, we don't know whether that would work or not. But luckily for them, there was a hacker's help desk that answered with the decryptor. Mm-hmm. And decryptor, unfortunately, was not working. So they paid half a million euros for something that didn't work. <laughs> that didn't work. And, uh, and our job was to verify whether this decryptor is indeed not working because mm-hmm. it's just nothing, or maybe there is something wrong in it. And then it appeared that data, when it was encrypted, it was encrypted a couple of times because the encryptor, so ransomware, was just oh. crashing because the data was in use. Mm-hmm. So therefore, the cryptor could not deal with that. Okay, so we decompiled it, we analyzed it, we tried to figure out what was going on, and then basically we managed to decrypt their data. But I'll call it a luck, actually. That, that is quite lucky to, to be able to, to identify the problem at the beginning, because um, a lot of cases I do find is that, you know, when I've looked at a lot of different variants of ransomware, mm-hmm. the encryption process is, is pretty impressive. Um, yes. <laughs> how fast they work, um, you know, by just doing even the headers and dealing with large files, um, even doing only specific uh, you know, directory paths in order to really make it, you know, painful for the customer. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but ultimately, what I look at when I see the decryption process is that it's it's an area that the uh, ransomware creators don't really invest much time into. <laughs> um, and I see in many cases, it fails a lot. Um, very few organizations that when they get the decryption uh, key and decryption utility, um, that the time it takes to restore the data is very lengthy as well and can sometimes take days and weeks to do. Um, so I, th- I think it, you know, if there's one area that the actual ransomware gangs are going to improve on is I think they're going to improve on the decryption capability because yeah. I, ultimately they, they want to show that it's a service and get paid for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, of course, my, my view is, is to not pay but ultimately, when it does come down to it, um, it is a business decision. I can only make my recommendations to victims, um, but ultimately, you know, it's a business decision to determine what's the right way forward. That's absolutely, so, absolutely true. It's always a challenge in that the case. Um, but when you get into, you know, when you, one of the things you mentioned about, you know, a lot of those entry points, um, I've seen, you know, and even in the service provider side, I've seen a lot of organizations where uh, I've seen uh, accountants, third-party accountants who have access 
and, and simply basically to an RDP, uh, basically uh, a desktop. So they're basically public-facing RDP, simply protected with a, a username and password. Um, and ultimately then, when you get into the systems, one thing that really annoys me is that today what's happening is the browsers really want to capture all of the credentials. So when you log into something using a browser, um, any browser, it will say, would you like to store the credentials in the browser to make it easier for you in the future? But by default, the browser security is turned off. <laughs> and, and it means that simply, you know, for me, in many cases, the browser itself is no better than some, you know, storing it in clear text on the desktop. It's just mm-hmm. in a different location. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one of the things that, you know, I've had discussions in the past, we really need to move away, not just to, you know, because the, the browsers do have security by design, but we need to start moving to more security by default, it being on you actually have to go and purposely switch it off. So if you are using a security feature that you want to make sure that actually, you know, the security parts of it is enabled. Because um, anytime, you know, in that situation where um, this organization did become a victim of uh, a ransomware attack, and the, in that case, it was the Crylock uh, version, the, the updated version of Cryacle. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, the, the, they were saving all of the passwords, usernames, credentials, uh, and all of the URLs that they go to, SaaS applications, all saved in the browser, all easy access uh, for the attackers to get, to get access to. Uh, any thoughts? You, you, you know, is that something similar that you're seeing as well? Yeah, absolutely. So, so first of all, what we need to know is that storing passwords in a browser, like you mentioned, it's not a good idea. And uh, many reasons, of course, for that. First of all, uh, especially from the user end user perspective, how do we know what kind of technology really is used behind to store these passwords? That's one thing. Second, within the DP API that we mentioned, you've got a possibility to extract these passwords very easily. And uh, it's basically the case that every app that you run on your computer, that's the case of a cryptographic platform within, within Windows. And I'm not saying it's bad. That's just basically how it works. Then basically we are able to access uh, any other passwords that's stored by any other app. So if I, for example, run um, application ABC, this application potentially might have access to passwords used by Outlook, uh, Chrome, and so on. Yeah, so different apps. That's the point. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, we we live in a world right now where we doubt and we have like lots of uh, trust that's lost to applications being signed. Yeah, so there are many examples that show this. For example, uh, let's say it loudly, we had a case of low solar winds, right? Mm-hmm. So we all trusted the vendor. I mean, it's a popular solution. But on the other hand, something went wrong in a process. Let's just shorten the story. And then um, everybody received signed software, which contained malware. So that can happen to the best, yeah. Yeah, as we can see. So, uh, of course, um, we, we are running these applications, but do we really know whether we are experiencing this kind of attack right now? We don't. Therefore, storing passwords, of course, uh, in the manager, so key pass and so on, mm-hmm. it's the greatest idea of what we got. Plus, we can secure it with the solutions like YubiKeys and so on in order to make sure that uh, everything everything is, uh, is well protected uh, with the a good industry standards. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, and and these points of entry, so the simple passwords as well, it's another problem, of course. And uh, if if the user is an unmanaged user, if the user doesn't have an MFA, same story here, then, um, of course, we are just asking uh, ourselves for uh, trouble. 
Yep. And we're just we're leaving the door open, you know, wide enough for the attackers to, to be able to see easily see it, especially when things are public facing. Um, one of the things you mentioned as well, you know, talking about um, when users are uh, misconfiguring or deciding which passwords to choose. One of the things that we kind of look at is I, I prefer, and this practice that I do all the time is the, the principle of least privilege, is having the least privilege that I'm operating on. So in all my Windows machines, I'm actually operating under a standard user and having the most limited privilege possible. So even if I do click on something, it's going to either prompt me for UAC or prompt me to elevate privileges. Um, what's your thoughts around kind of operating under the principle of least privilege or making sure that people aren't overprivileged so to reduce the potential impact of when they do click on something? Yeah, so so this is definitely the the, the trend that we were not really talking about. Uh, let's say five, mm. six years years ago. Now, of course, we are uh, talking about a strict role separation, and there are also various third party solutions that are allowing us to implement that in a little bit more more of a smooth way and to restrict the possibility uh, to jump into uh, the servers area if you are managing workstations and so on. So we've got this clear mm. role separation and also separation into tires uh, into, into various layers um, of, of components in the infrastructure. So uh, my perspective on that, it's very simple. That's what we all should have. And that's mm -hmm. what we should have in our minds years back. Yeah, but of yeah. course the attacks were not so popular. Yeah, the ransomware was uh, just starting to to grow. So we were just experiencing less attacks or different kinds of. So these ones uh, that we got right now are leveraging um, simple points of entry. And then if uh, just because we do not have a privilege access management, they are able to escalate further in the infrastructure, that's mm -hmm. better for them because they will be able to destroy more things. So one thing is, of course, encrypting data. But second one is just to stay there in the infrastructure and monitor it for the couple of months. And that's what we are observing at our customers' infrastructures too. So uh, we were dealing last year um, mm -hmm. with a really huge project of... Um, let's say, a governmental, semi-governmental organization where hackers were sitting in the infrastructure for over nine months. So, like, what can you do? Saying it in another very engineers, engineering way, we could do everything. So everything means what? Literally everything. So you could be domain admin, uh, spy on people, um, literally set up everything that would allow to infiltrate this particular organization. Plus, of course, uh, another aspect um, uh, comes to place, which is uh, JDPR, and that could also introduce uh, some troubles mm -hmm. uh, to this organization because the organization is responsible for protecting uh, that type of information. And when it leaks, whose problem is this? Yes, hacker is not taking responsibility for yeah. that. So there are lots of aspects, not only the business continuity related, but also legal uh, that are that are uh, impacted by that kind of escalation. So privilege access management, definitely a go altogether with um, the possibility to have whitelisting in the organization. Why we are running the code that we don't know, why we even allow that, that was always the question that I was asking. And I'm still asking that question. Uh, even We've got 2022 and companies still don't have that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think for me, the, the, the concern, of course, and, and when we look at the solar winds, you know, is that we're always looking to patch and update things as quickly as possible. Right. And it was always about, you know, uh, signed libraries being the way, you know, that root of trust, being able to determine whether that was something that you could trust from a third party source. 
And we've seen over the last couple of years, you know, keys being compromised and that root of trust being basically broken. And it means that, you know, when, when you need the update and patch, when's fast enough or when do you need to run it in a sandbox in order to observe and see if it's doing something malicious? Uh, so those are some of the challenges that we, we have. Um, one of the things that you kind of brought to my, my mind was that around doing a lot of instant responses when you're actually going and dealing with something like a ransomware case. And of course, cryptocurrencies has really also made it much more easier uh, for the money payment side of things. So it can be much more anonymized and can be laundered and filtered and so forth. So it's made it much easier, of course, from the money trail uh, to pass through to the criminals. But one thing you kind of brought to mind was that absolutely when tend to be when I'm responding to certain incidents and you're going in and you're doing the digital forensic side of things, you tend to find other evidence of other criminals having access for long periods of time. Um, you know, for months uh, in some cases. So sometimes, sometimes you're dealing with one incident, you tend to uncover maybe two or three others um, oh, yeah. <laughs> of evidence of other criminals being on the networks. And one thing that I find was as well, a few years ago, I've seen a few cases where that, of course, some uh, criminals were not actually doing anything malicious within the organization, but what, what they were doing was actually insider trading. They were actually using the information that they're gathering from internal knowledge of the organization about how well they're performing and actually going on the public stock market and making bets based mm -hmm. on the performance because that's insider information that no one publicly has. So it's another thing that, you know, and that type of money trail is much more difficult to, mm -hmm. to uh, you know, to be able to find because it's basically, you know, it's public domain. So it's it's using basically the stock market in order to make money. And how do you actually make that connection uh, back to insider trading? Um, so that's another thing that many organizations need to be worried about is also you know, that in internal information being available uh, to external attackers and be able to make you know, publicly financial bets based on the organization, you know, whether it be ac acquisitions information, legal cases being uh, resolved. Uh, and attackers can can manipulate and to make bets depending on the you know that information being coming public. So those are other challenges that many organizations have to face as well. Um, going back to the, the user side of things, you know, I, I think it's you know it's always important that we make sure that we educate and make users much more aware. Uh, but one trend that I, I get worried about is that are we really you know we can't expect all users to become cybersecurity professionals. It's not their job, and it's not what they get measured to do. Um, where's the balance between cybersecurity awareness side of things, you know, and, and making sure that people are, are aware enough, but not, let's say, depending on them to make the right decisions uh, when it comes to security? Um, what's your kind of views around security awareness training and kind of what we can do better around that area? Yeah, that's a great question. And I'm glad to see that we are also on the same page because users definitely are not trained to be cybersecurity professionals and it's not mm -hmm. their job to identify every threat that they might potentially step into. Uh, therefore, uh, the role of technology comes to place and the role of awareness comes to place. Mm -hmm. So these two things, they have to be cooperating with each other very well because for the fact that we're going to make all users aware, of course, it does not solve all of our problems. So one thing is uh, to introduce technology, uh, mm -hmm. if we can, that will allow us to sleep as well, meaning that users can click potentially anything they want to and nothing's going to happen. Yeah, um, mm -hmm. All these points of entry, they have a certain characteristic 
that it's not new for us. So, for example, we've got an email, there's a macro. A macro most probably has a child process that's going to be running from Excel, let's say, or it might be, for example, running inside Excel. Then, of course, we've got an exploit guard, for example, addressing this problem, or we've got attack surface reduction rules addressing this problem. So there are solutions that are allowing to sleep as well. We just need Mm -hmm. to implement it. But of course, there are some technological, let's call it exceptions. Mm -hmm. So there are certain situations that um, where there are so many people in this world and uh, someone's going to figure out something that's going to allow us to bypass these solutions. Obviously, Mm -hmm. that's what cybersecurity is about. So let's say it's going to be a user and therefore comes awareness, very important, backing us up factor, which should be introduced well in the organization. Mm -hmm. And awareness should be uh, brought to the point when it's becoming useful for a user. So it's my personal account on Facebook. It's Mm -hmm. my personal account on LinkedIn. It works in a similar way as we got in the organization. We need to make sure that we are not losing our identity. The problem is that People nowadays, I think, in a companies may not be, of course, generically saying yes, but th- th- there is one point missing. What does it mean to have the identity stolen? Mm-hmm. Sounds like a very romantic uh, title for a movie, uh, but when it happens to someone, it's a real nightmare because we yeah. are losing access to all of our friends, to all of our resources, pictures, whatever that will be, plus our account is becoming uh, a feeder for hackers to get access to the other mm-hmm. accounts. Yeah? And yeah. we're also, that might also impact our friends' relationships. Who knows? Yeah? So mm-hmm. uh, it, it's, it's a lot of mess. So people need to be aware why this is happening, how this is happening. So awareness uh, nowadays should have examples brought to the field so that people see, hey, this is th- this is how hackers act. That's the video yeah. where we demonstrate what's going to happen exactly. And we connect it all, we explain it from three different angles so that people are like, ah, so there is something to protect. Mm-hmm. And we do it in the same way, both for personal life and also company life. So role of awareness, especially for personal life, it's crucial nowadays. So the better, of course, uh, and with more examples, security mm-hmm. training we are able to deliver, the better. <laughs> Absolutely. One of my, you're so right on that point is that when when I look at security for myself, I'm always thinking about my, it's, it's, I can secure myself to a certain point, but it's my social sphere around me. And mm-hmm. one of the things that I realize that I'm only secure is the people I'm connected to in my social mm-hmm. network and the people that I interact with daily. And one of the things I find, when this came back years ago, doing a, it was a, a security audit for a large transportation company. And one of the things that they did was that they realized, we, we realized we were failing in our uh, security awareness and enforcement side of things. Because we were going, we were the security team of saying, no, you must do this and enforcing everything. And ultimately what happened was, it was really interesting because when we revised it and we did basically a review of what we were doing, the organization realized that we actually, anything we do in security awareness has to also improve the actual employee's home life, personal life, the people around them. And that was one of the things that they end up even giving uh, free uh, security solutions, antivirus and password managers for them to actually, for their home machines, not just their corporate machines. Because if we fast forward to today, uh, everyone's using the personal devices also for work as well. Um, and that for me, that was about 11, 12 years ago. And that was almost like a kind of forward thinking idea. Uh, but in today's reality, it's, it's so uh, critical that 
we need to be doing anything that's security awareness needs to also make an impact to people's personal lives and improve their security of the social sphere. Um, and that's what, so one of the things that for me is, is so critical. And to your point as well, you know, we need to definitely making sure that we make uh, uh, their lives when it comes down to the impact side of things and raising awareness. Um, and that time as well that we find uh, during the analysis that it was all about the best people for actually becoming cyber mentors or cyber ambassadors was victims. Um, because you're also, if you lose your identity, it's, let's say, you know, most people were worried about losing, uh, let's say, credit card payments or debit card payments when they do internet shopping. And all of a sudden, you know, you know, they pay something fraudulent or they lose some money in their credit card. When you look at it, you know, it's, it's so much easier to get your money back if there's a financial fraud in your credit card versus if you have an identity theft, mm, it's yeah. so much more difficult to get your identity back online. And the process that you had to go through um, can be actually some people you know, can take years before you can get your, your identity back. And also we think about that every, everyone's identity revolves around their email account, right. <laughs> unfortunately. And yeah. if, if your email account is ever compromised, that you end up that they can go and reset all your passwords of all your accounts mm -hmm. and take over those accounts as well. Um, so if you lose your email access uh, from an identity theft, uh, that can be devastating. Um, any, any things you recommend that you know people can do from best practices around reducing that risk? Uh, because for me, I think it's identity theft can be very devastating for many people. Absolutely. So, so therefore, anything like multi-factor authentication mm -hmm. with uh, the complex password, uh, it's something that we need to definitely have. Uh, regularly changing passwords, that's another classic tip uh, for, for everybody. And also, if it's a business email, then, of course, we've got a various solutions that are mm -hmm. allowing us to identify where someone is logging on from uh, to allow only logons from a certain location, for example, in the world, certain mm -hmm. time, in a certain way, and so on. So these are the logics that we what we have access to right now, and they are clickable through the portal, uh, which we, for example, use to manage our our whole corporate email. And um, and it's very easy to implement those. So multi-factor authentication, it's clearly a must. Mm -hmm. Because how else, if not this way, we are able to protect uh, ourselves from, for example, even using a known password. Because, mm -hmm. okay, that might happen, but we don't want that to be that person that gets that, gets that guest uh, so, so that's that's one of the things. But I completely agree with you on uh, also one thing here, that uh, in in terms of uh, security awareness, um, one thing is uh, also needed, and I think this is slowly but happening. So that's good news, is that cybersecurity being a uh, responsibility of all of us should be introduced also uh, to the other spheres rather than cybersecurity, like, for example, other trainings that people take, uh, so that people are aware about cyber at any moment, whatever they, they step in. So, for example, they do training on marketing solutions. There's a module on cybersecurity. They do participate in financial training somewhere. There's a module about cybersecurity and threats related with finance. Yeah? So mm -hmm. there is this small, maybe, conversation about it, but yet showing that this is an important uh, subject so so that people understand that protection more and if you got a chance at the end to turn on multi-factor authentication on uh, for example a linkedin facebook account mm -hmm. whatever that will be then they will just do it 
And that's what we want. Absolutely. It makes a big difference. I'm going to one of your points as well is that one of the things that, you know, historically and unfortunately, you know, and this is probably, you know, it's, it's caused a lot of challenge from organizations that cybersecurity has always been put into the IT technology bucket. And that's where it's kind of left an accountability mm. responsibility. Uh, but it's so much more than that today. And you're, you're right that it's moved into that it's no longer an IT uh, responsibility. Um, it's actually a business responsibility. And cybersecurity needs to move out of the IT realm and actually be a supporting part of the entire business function, uh, whether it being HR, finance, marketing, sales, and so forth. It needs to move out of its silo and become an integrated part across all of those. Just like you have health and safety or first aid training and so forth, that it needs to be much more thought around that it's actually a supporting part of the actually the business itself. And actually it was one of the things that, you know, I remember last year we had Cybersecurity Awareness Month and I was kind of a bit upset that we had this cybersecurity first approach and I always thought that cybersecurity shouldn't be first, it's always business first, but cybersecurity is a supporting part of the business. Um, mm-hmm. Because at the end of the day, cybersecurity is all about you know making the business resilient, reducing the risk to the business, and helping the business be successful. We don't do cybersecurity for just for the sake of cybersecurity. Uh, so that's something um, that kind of really got to me when we did that cybersecurity awareness month. One question I've got for you though is that mm-hmm. um, you mentioned a lot about macros, and that you know macros have definitely been a big pain for many organizations because, of course, we've seen a lot of exploits of Macro 4.0. Uh, in Excel and so forth. Um, and Microsoft made the announcement to have it disabled by default. <laughs> What's your thoughts around that, about turning off macros by default? It's, it's a, a, bit, a bit a dream of every <laughs> cybersecurity specialist, but I can also imagine the business side uh, being um, in pain because of that, mm-hmm. uh, because there are many macros that are used, especially yeah. in financial organizations, to update this little thing from that database over there and so on. And it appears that it's a very crucial thing, mm-hmm. crucial tool, as they would call it, or even application, as they call it, yep. um, that is uh, supporting, uh, for example, dealing room operations in dealing room in a bank yeah mm-hmm. uh, so uh yeah I, I mean it's it's a great change to be fair time to yeah. get rid of that but on the other hand question is um okay we can disable macros but uh, maybe we should think first why macros and which way macros are being a threat for us mm-hmm. uh, because the way how they behave it's very patronized so we've got uh, as we mentioned before child process or we can run things within the within the for example excel itself uh, so win32 api and so mm-hmm. on so uh, so that that's where the problem is and macros of course might be legit there might be signs we m- might maybe do some white listing for the macros that would be also mm-hmm. a great setting that we are allowing this and that macro because sometimes uh, these these macros are really advanced and rewriting them to the other functionality it's it's lots of money and yeah. mainly time yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I agree. I was I was happy to see it, but I thought in the same process is that mm. <laughs> when I put my business kind of hat on, how is the business going to deal with this? Because it is very, you know, especially in financial, it's very like a critical part of the business. And it kind of got me thinking is, is why, you know, why don't they move it to much more role-based? Is that, you know, it's more of a policy that you assign to a user rather than actually having something that's part of the configuration of a computer or system or, or the application itself. So it becomes more role-based um, and also getting into, you know, we do a lot of virtualization containers today. Exactly. Uh, why can it actually be run in a container or sandbox? So, mm-hmm. um, but it, the good point is, is that it's disabled by default because 
the large portions of the population do not need it and they will never need to need it. Um, so um, as long as they do make it easy to turn on for those business you know, departments that do um, have dependencies on it. Uh, but the good thing is at least it reduces the potential scope uh, of the targets from micro-base attacks. Um, it makes it more, at, least, at least makes it more difficult for the criminals to be successful. Definitely. But see, I would like to hear that about passwords, for example. Like from now on, we are disabling passwords. Everybody's going to be like, no. But at the end, everybody's going to be like, yay, because nobody likes to manage them anyway. So uh, so then we've got authenticator apps and so on. And of course, different problems uh, rise. Uh, but uh, I think password, and uh, that's not very... Uh, rocket science, what I'm saying now, it is a bit of an old school way of authenticating into things, right? Absolutely. Well, I really hope, one of the things I'm hoping is that it's sometimes a bit of confusion, and this is one of the things that, you know, me and some of my peers have always had is the run and run passwords is that we hear a lot about passwordless and we hear about biometrics and single sign-on. And, we, and I, I think they're all great, but sometimes there's a misconception into that, you know, biometrics doesn't really replace the password. It's actually a improved identifier. It's part of the mm-hmm. identifier part of, of uh, authentication, which mm-hmm. means that it's really, it has better security attributes. And what it has, yes, it's more difficult to replicate, um, but it replaces the username portion of the authentication. So you always want to get into either, you know, combining it, you know, if it is something that's sensitive you're accessing, um, then you want to combine it with multi-factor authentication. So doing biometrics with some type of push notification or multi-factor authentication, uh, that will replace the username and password. But we do need to stop having people being managing the passwords, deciding what's the next great password. And we have to start moving it much more into the background, into an automated process. So when I talk about password lists, for me, it's not... People assume that like Cortana or you know, uh, facial recognition on Apple devices is going to replace passwords. What it's doing is just really replacing where the mechanism for authentication is happening. Mm-hmm. Um, so absolutely, moving them into the background so that it can be much more managed in an automated, systematic way so that we're not relying on humans choosing the next great, fantastic password. And because we know that after, we, you know, after 10 fingers, uh, and uh, five passwords, we start reusing combinations or variations of the same thing. Um, and that makes them weak and easy guessable. Um, so absolutely, passwords for many organizations, the more we move to alternative authentication and authorization mechanisms, the more difficult we make it for attackers to be successful. Because one, one of my sayings is that um, it's all about, you know, there's no 100%, 100% protection. There's no, you know, golden bullet security. That what what I do in my job every day is about making the attackers, making it more uh, of a risk, making it more of a challenge, and forcing them forcing them to make more noise. And the more noise they make in my network, the more visibility I can get uh, to stopping them from from laterally moving or elevating or getting further into sensitive areas. Uh, so we we want to make it as difficult as possible. Being from Belfast originally. One of the mm-hmm. things that you know, I always compare it to when I think about it in a real world scenario, it's like me pa- parking my car next to a nicer car that has less security, um, so that my car will not be stolen. And that was always the way, that was the method. When you drive around, you're like, okay, where's the where's the nicer looking car, so no one will be interested in stealing my car uh, and looking at it from a security perspective. So, uh, so hey, what's your thoughts on on the, the direction of future that we're going? What's your what's your f- forecast or predictions that you have? Uh, in the near future when it comes to cybersecurity? 
Sure. So uh, that's that's a, a question that I really love because every year the answer is going to be slightly different because uh, we are having certain uh, trends that we are observing mm. that are increasing. Like, for example, this absolutely crazy increase of ransomware attacks in 2021. Uh, but uh, I'm saying always one same thing that what the future should be is that we should uh, revise the incident response plans for the organizations because experience shows during the pandemics that lots of organizations, it's not that they don't, they have a wrong incident response plans. Mm-hmm. They just don't have any. And the part, the part of that, and uh, it's, it's also quite, quite uh, funny, is that uh, also according to some stats, we've got approximately 70% of organizations that basically did not even approach professionally incident response planning. So they did not construct the team. They did not plan the process. So when we got an incident, what do we do? Yeah. Okay. They might have a backup, but they do not have this um, procedure that allows them at least to gather the evidence. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm always kind of laughing, even though it's uh, maybe not really funny, but kind of funny, is that when we got an incident, one of the things uh, that I ask for at at, uh, first, of course, uh, amongst many other Mm -hmm. steps, is to collect the evidence if we can. So we collect the memory dump first. We do the disk dump so that maybe we're going to need it in future. Who knows? Maybe that's going to be helpful for the analysis. It's good to know more for sure. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the uh, questions is, okay, it's like, okay, so how do we do that? And I'm like, okay, so you, we need a guidance. Great. It means that incident response isn't in place. Okay, we explain. Mm-hmm. And then the second question is, how much space do we need on these external drives? <laughs> and, oh, no. So that's kind of telling me one thing that obviously they do not have an empty drive maybe somewhere next to their hands and um and another part is okay so how much do you memory do you got 64 gigs okay so this plus drive okay that means four terabytes oh but we don't have a drive like that oh no it's uh, a problem yeah because we will have to uh figure it out so then they order it on amazon or something uh same day delivery if it's possible they go to the market store immediately what immediately it means like two hours plus no. So uh, time, time, it's absolutely crucial in this kind of incidents. Lots of things can happen in two hours. We know that. And it will be great to know more again. So when we do the memory dump earlier, this dump earlier, we're going to get things in a better condition. Yeah, mm-hmm. Maybe nothing's going to be destroyed. Maybe something. We don't want it. We don't want it. We don't want any loss over there. So um, yeah, incident response plan should start with uh, preparing ourselves a good pile of drive that addresses our current average configuration of the servers. And let's start with that one. <laughs> Absolutely. One of the, it's not just about even being having instant response plans, also being instant response ready and actually practicing because you know, when you're not using those techniques on a daily basis, yeah, they, they become a bit kind of dated. And so you do need the practice when you're taking images of machines, whether being in raw format or DD format, or whether using something like, uh, um, you know, in case or something that's basically going to basically, you know, do the, the, the imaging for you. And I always get into is, is the same thing is that, you know, one of the questions I've got is that when I'm going into an incident and they do have a plan, but they have no idea how they act upon it, of what right. to do first. And time's ticking and you're, you're going, okay, what, where's the log files? Well, we don't archive them. So, and the attackers deleted all of the event logs, so they're all gone. Okay. Okay. Um, so that's one, one thing. Okay. Now, which accounts do I have that I can actually use to, in order to do the forensics? 
well, we actually had to disable all the accounts in the system because they're being compromised by the attackers. So mm-hmm. therefore, they have to go and create new ones. And you're going, well, you mean they own the domain and you're going to create new accounts in the same network? Or are you going to give you the same accounts that you end up contaminating the evidence? Uh, because then how do you differentiate between my work that I'm doing and the attackers? Right. So you're going to end up in that situation. So it's, and then absolutely, you're right about, you know, you're getting into the way we need to take uh, uh, images of all of these systems now, the impacted systems, where are you going to store the data? And they don't have that size of space. And it, it really comes into, you know, it ends up for me, you know, it ends up coming when I, when I get into this response, it, it ends up coming out of my disks that I've got my archive that are clean and ready. And, and you end up, you know, exchanging that way. But, you know, it really shows that organizations, they, they, they think they have it when they go through this checkbox approach, mm-hmm. but when they actually don't practice it, they don't have the reality into what it really means to actually really respond to an incident. Whether it's good to do something or not, yeah. or, and and yeah, exactly. What kind of steps should I should I take? How and do you also, find patient zero? How do you do yeah, you know yeah. the attack path? How did they get in? How do you make sure you close the door? And you get into the question as well about oh. backups. <laughs> um, the backup scenario every single time it's been an online backup that the mm-hmm. same credentials for the Active Directory is the same credentials for the backup system. So the attackers have simply encrypted the backup. I've seen cases where the backup has actually backed up the, the ransomware so that when they restored, they actually restored a ransomware and it triggered again at a later stage uh, because basically it was actually already backed up in the system. So, so yeah, absolutely. Better instant response planning and preparation and readiness is something I would like to see organizations really prioritize uh, going forward. See what what comes to my mind. Uh, maybe a bit of a offline comment here is like uh, when I was doing the pentas once in the organization, and when I managed to get in, I've seen the administrator literally crying because he was so sad about the fact that I managed to get in, and that's his infrastructure that he really cared about, and uh, and uh, that was a very inconvenient for sure yeah. situation for him. So I wonder what kind of emotions they got. Uh, when the incident happens and they are not prepared, it's I, I've yeah. I think you know, from emotional perspective, that's when a lot of people burn out. Actually, is when mm-hmm. you're dealing with those types of incidents, and, and, they don't and it's more of do. a blame rather than people realizing that you know, when you're responding to an incident, you're you're you know, uh, one thing I've got in my bag is uh, chocolate bars and earmuffs <laughs> and something warm and you know, a pillow sometimes because you never know where you're going to be sleeping. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, and you end up getting into that these people are working under severe stress, um, typically no sleep or run the clock because the, you have to respond and, and you know, anything that you leave uncovered is another potential risk that you could be dealing mm-hmm. with it again uh, very quickly after that. So it is a very stressful scenario and it does take a good leadership and good response project managers yeah. to make sure that the team has everything they need to be able to do what they need to get done. Uh, because yeah, I've seen a lot of people... Um, leave their jobs after incidents, um, and, or and, they are fired. <laughs> or they're fired ultimately, but uh, more more leaving on their own will because they just didn't want to deal with the stress again. The burnout mm. was too much for them. Yeah, so, good point. But to that point, I think that was important. I think one of the things I'd like to then get is what's good measurement? How, how do you know you're good at cybersecurity? What, what what's the indicators that you're doing the right thing? Um, you know, that's, I think that's one of the important topic. Yeah, that, that's a very, very cool topic because uh, we, we all see that in cybersecurity, even though there are some recommendations, mm-hmm. there are some probes for standards and so on, there's nobody uh, that's going to say like, hey, you're you're good because you got this, this and that. Mm-hmm. 
usually we say you're good because you've got a lot of experience. So how to be good without having that experience yet <laughs> and uh, how to get this experience? These are the most important questions we are hearing in our education part of cybersecurity. Mm -hmm. And one of the features uh, let me call it this way, that I really like to see in people that are starting and in general in mm -hmm. everybody, but especially the ones that are starting uh, when they are when they are not having even any knowledge around cybersecurity. It's huge curiosity mm -hmm. to the bones and also uh, the willing to share with the team. So um, like it's really hard to be there in a cybersecurity field by yourself because you may lose an an picture of of the certain certain uh, solutions scene, whatever that will be, and you might think something, and then it's going to come out well within your measurements. But then in the whole infrastructure, your little research might think something completely else. So we always have to verify our knowledge whether the thinking patterns that we got is 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 good are mm -hmm. the other people agreeing with us that's why i really always appreciate the power of team yep uh and especially cybersecurity. it's a busy um busy uh, job as well mm -hmm. you travel somewhere for example even to the customer side at the zero day happens you really want to know what's going on but you have mm -hmm. no time to check who's gonna do that yeah. team's gonna do it they're gonna help you or you're gonna do this for them so what what means to be good is definitely uh, to be curious, to be mm -hmm. willing to research more, to be not too afraid to say, I don't know, because in cybersecurity, lots of things are unknown and we are used to not knowing things, right? Yeah. And, and also um, finding yourself in some community and definitely making saying kind of maybe brutally use of it and but at the same time giving so um so that's basically what means to be good and the time is going to bring the the rest absolutely no what you remind me of a few important points absolutely for the, for me it's the networking community there around us which is so critical i know that i haven't got the knowledge for everything but when something bad happens i know who to go to that will help right. me get that answer so, and, and it's, you know, the people I know are more valuable than me doing a Google search, you know, because of course we still revert to Google searches yes. on, on occasion. But that if I know someone who has in-depth knowledge and that that's the person I go to. So, and that's what, what for me, that's what the likes of RSA and Black Hat have become. They mm -hmm. are not just conferences, they're community events for us all to get together yeah. and share our knowledge. And you're so right. One of the things I always remember, one of my problems many years, more than 20 years ago, was I was a perfectionist and I wouldn't share anything until I knew it was 100% correct. So when I was working on a script or some project or some system or automation, I would basically be perfecting it so that there would be no errors or that it would work perfect in every scenario. And my manager back then at the time was Brian Honan. Um, and he said to me that the criticism, it's one of my good things, but it's also one of my bad uh, uh, things is that perfectionism. And when I realized that, yes, that the important thing was sharing early and getting more feedback early will mm -hmm. help me make sure that um, I'm sharing the knowledge, that other people are getting value from it, that I can get feedback into to making it even better as I go along. So communicating, being part of a team, um, that's what's really critical. And that's what definitely helps organizations become much more resilient because we have access to that community. The attackers are doing the same thing. They're doing the same process. They're sharing and they're communicating and they're collaborating on different forums. Um, but we also need to make that our strength as well. 
So you're absolutely right. Being part of a team and being on the organization, it's not just about being a team in the organization, but it's being a team in the community uh, Mm -hmm. will definitely make a big difference. Paula, it's been fantastic having you on the podcast. It's been great catching up. It's been too long. And the (laughs) pandemic itself has has kept us far apart for a long time, but hopefully events like these and be able to communicate and chat and and as things start to go back into normal, (laughs) back to normality again, um, I'll look forward to catching up in the future. Any final words that you have for the audience um, that uh, would make a difference? Yeah, I think that uh, what I would have for the audience is uh, to rethink the goal of the pen test because pen tests have been there for so many years. And of course, it's our method of verifying whether hacker can get access to our infrastructure from many different angles. But um, what I was thinking, and that is also the feeling that we are getting from our customers, is that pen tests should be maybe sometimes looking towards the direction of reviewing or focusing uh, on the identity. Identity has been become like more important than ever. Means that in general, if the identity is stolen, as we discussed, we got a problem. But identity is also a part of the attack. So what we have to uh, rethink is where do we use what kind of identity? Where do we obviously use privilege access? That's uh, a must must uh, have to to review. But also, if the hacker manages to get into some user accounts, how the whole environment looks like. So if we, if this password leaks, if the VPN access leaks, like what are these identities? What kind of mm-hmm. applications we are using? So, so that kind of a different angle for the Pentas. And Pentas in general um, should be reviewed also from the perspective of usefulness because it's mm-hmm. great to have one or two weeks or three weeks to have a look at the potential points of entry within that period of time. But maybe Pentest could transform into a continuous service while we are verifying all the time what kind of things potentially are changing, of course, in the infrastructure. But what are the other points of entry? Because usually, and uh, I bet you would agree with me, a Pentest projects, they obviously last a certain time. And then we write a report and then maybe there is a recheck and maybe another one. Who knows? And maybe in one year, another Pentest. Okay. So, so. This, but this is still three weeks period, for example. Yeah. Do hackers have more time? Sure. <laughs> Unlimited time. <laughs> Unlimited time. That's so. the problem. So maybe we should uh, think about uh, rethinking the idea of that service and uh, implementing it uh, in a little bit different way. And uh, maybe for customers, it's going to be cheaper to do it this way. And for us, it's going to be also more convenient mm-hmm. because we will be able to use our all skills on that infrastructure, not just limit ourselves to the most important one within the period of time that we got. Just a thought. <laughs> Absolutely. Very wise words. For me, I think, you know, we took the, the term purple teaming is really kind of evolving into really it's about collaborating with the defenders right. and the attackers, you know, the red team and, and blue team together. Um, and that's definitely, you know, th- that's where you get that collaboration education knowledge. And it's also about measuring. It's about is is the is it creating the noise that you can get the visibility? And is it about creating the defense? Is it, is, is it measuring your security tools and solutions you've got in place? It has to become much more than what it has been, which is that yearly mm-hmm. checkbox until you've done it to, to meet some audit compliance. It needs to evolve into something that's a bit more active and continuously active within the business itself. So absolutely wise words. So Paula, it's been fantastic having you on the podcast. It's been great catching up and uh, looking forward to some of your talks in the future. Um, I think the next time that people get to you will be at RSA. I think you'll be in June. Um, Yes, exactly. We're going to be there, yeah. 
fantastic. So, so for anyone, definitely uh, go and uh, look and connect to Paula. She's amazing. She creates amazing work, and it's been a pleasure. So for the audience, this is 401 Access Denied, uh, your biweekly podcast. So Joe Carson here uh, signing out and looking forward to seeing you and hearing uh, from you on future podcasts. So thank you very much and take care. Learn how your team can get a free trial of Cybrary for Business by going to www.cybrary.it slash business. This podcast is also brought to you by Delinea. Dicotic and Centrify are now Delinea, the leader in privileged access management. To learn more, visit delinea.com.